Hello, everyone. Welcome to Not Your Average Goat. This is a show that celebrates all the shapes, sizes, and colors of diversity as well as adversity by creating a space for authentic and vulnerable conversations that hopefully you find to be meaningful and relatable. Through these conversations, my guests and I hope to have an impact on dismantling deeply ingrained stigma and prejudice. Zach, thank you for coming on the show. I'm super excited to talk to you. And I actually got introduced to you through a fellow, or I guess a common uh, friend slash acquaintance, Chad Belton, who is also a guest on Natural Average Goat. And Chad and I initially met through a Facebook group for business enthusiasts, but I'm curious to know how you and Chad actually came to be acquainted. It's been a minute now, I think. <laughs> gosh, I, I I believe it was just stumbling across people on Twitter. I, I At the time, when, when I found Chad, if I'm remembering this correctly, it was, I, I was in the process of teaching myself to learn or teaching myself how to code. And Chad had mentioned something about wanting to create a game of his own. So I just kind of reached out and told him what I was doing and asked him if it was okay if I contacted him when I finished my app. And that was, I mean, that had to have been over a year ago at this point. So um, I finally, I reached out and then he interviewed me on his podcast. And after that went live, I asked him if he had any friends or colleagues that he thought might might be interested in talking to me as well. Well, I'm super excited he referred you to me. I'm definitely very excited to jump into this conversation. And as you briefly mentioned, you recently released your first game uh, to the Apple App Store, which we'll kind of dive into more of the details later. But that came out on July 4th, right? So it's been a couple of weeks now. I think I have all of the bugs ironed out that everybody reported. It's that that first week was super chaotic. You know, I had I had a live beta test of the app available for over a month, and I addressed all the feedback that people had given to me. But it turned out that there were some really massive issues that no one had experienced until the app went live. Of course, so I was scrambling. Uh, I mean, I think I put in almost 70 hours that first week that it was out just trying to figure out what was going on so that I didn't make Xanagrams fail before it even had a chance to get legs underneath. It was it was rough, but it should be good now. Yeah, that sounds like a lot, but it's it's also so great that you're dedicated to addressing all of those issues because I think that that's a common pain point, you know, for people with visual impairments uh, when it comes to accessibility, but also people who don't have a disability and just dealing with bugs and glitches within games and apps, whether it be on your phone, on a game console. And oftentimes those things don't get addressed because, I mean, it feels like the developers don't care. Maybe that's not true at the end of the day, but um, that's really cool that you put so much time into fixing those things so quickly. I think some of it was honestly the fear of failure <laughs> after I yeah. invested almost two years into teaching myself how to code. I would have been just wrecked if if it kind of fell on its face because of that stuff. So it's been really cool. I've 
Mostly, it, I, I guess I've started to spread the word now. Obviously, I'm doing your podcast, so I'm talking about it more. But initially, I just spread the word in some Facebook groups for blind and low vision folks. And I got, because, because those groups are relatively small and visually impaired people seem to be pretty loyal to developers who create accessible apps, I was able to have like immediate and constant contact with these people to try and track down bugs. And honestly, that helped me out a lot. And it also helped keep me from freaking out that everything was going wrong with the app right off the bat. That's incredible. And those groups are so valuable too, because usually user research like that costs companies so much money. So to just have that feedback at your fingertips and get it so quickly from so many dedicated uh, players of the game, that that definitely helps out a lot. Yeah, honestly, Facebook groups like that have been a huge resource for me, just in in general, since I've lost my site, but especially since I've, I've launched Xanagrams and this whole process leading up to it. It's I, I was never a big social media person before, but it's actually turned out to be just an incredible tool for me. So Zach, something I love to do with everyone at the beginning of the show is to kind of time travel back and look at your childhood. And I'm curious to know from you, like looking back on yourself around eight, 10 years old, tell me who Zach was back then, like your personality, your interest. So I'm 27 now. Obviously, my life has changed quite a bit since I was eight years old. But I, I was actually an only child for the first 11 years of my life. My family is super spread out. So I'm 27. I have a 16-year-old sister, and I also have a five-year-old sister. But, oh my goodness. So it's, it's pretty wild. It's an interesting dynamic. But I've always been an athlete. So I, I played sports year-round as a kid. And we moved around a lot because my dad was in the military as well. And I mean, if you consider the, the chair force, the military, it's not the Marine Corps, but you know, we have to give him his credit. And <laughs> as an only child, that was kind of my thing. And that's, that's really what I remember was just kind of living for, for sports. And I know today you do a lot of extreme sports and mixed martial arts. So like we're whitewater rafting, you just went on a trip in Montana, snowboarding, skiing, jujitsu. Um, what's, what was kind of like your first love when it came to sports as a child? Oh gosh. I know the first sport that I played was soccer, which was probably a huge disappointment to my dad because he was a big baseball player <laughs> and he still <laughs> teases me about it, but as a little kid, I don't necessarily remember. It was just part of life. You know, my dad was an athlete as well. So I just always was playing sports. But as as a teen, I really fell in love with snowboarding. Uh, we moved out to Colorado between my sophomore and junior year of high school. And I bought a or asked for a, a snowboard for Christmas got that and then started teaching myself how to snowboard and going up to the mountains with friends. And it became a, a weekly thing that I would go do throughout the winters. You know, I would spend all day Saturday at wrestling tournaments in the winter because I wrestled in high school. And then all day Sunday, we would be up the mountain snowboarding. And that was the first, I think, like sport that I, I had a, like, a wild passion for it was, I guess, around when I was 16. So Zach, you mentioned, so your, your dad was in the military it also seems that you came from like a very long line of veterans on both sides of your family. Can you tell me more about what you remember growing up in that type of environment? And were there any specific values that you think came from your family? Yeah, it seems to be like, if I just 
kind of look back right now, I think typically it's all, all the males in my family on both sides have been military. So it was just normal to me growing up. And then obviously as a young boy, you look up to your dad and my dad was military. So I kind of grew up always wanting to go into the military. And one thing that's common in the military is if you're not 15 minutes early, you're late. And that was this, you know, growing up with everything. That's always how my dad was. And that was something that stuck with me. And then just discipline. Um, My dad's always been a a very disciplined dude. And I had pretty strict parents growing up. You know, if I didn't reply with yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, or no, ma'am, then my parents would be like, what would you say until like, (laughs) unless I said it, it was just, it was pretty military-esque having young parents that were in the military. Um, along with the discipline, is just the, the drive to get whatever needs to be done, done. And taking that upon yourself to make it happen and doing whatever it takes to make that happen. I Honestly, I think that's what's carried me through my vision loss into what I'm doing now and everything that I've done since. And even just, you know, I was very successful in the Marine Corps. And it's just, it was a part of my personality that was kind of bred into me, I guess, as a kid, just as a byproduct of being a military brat. And it's, it's really benefited me. By the time I graduated high school, I'd moved 10 times. And those are, those are like moves to different states. That's not just moving to a different part of town. Those are, it's having to adjust to that constantly as a kid, I think also lends or at least has lent me like the ability to adapt to things a little bit kind of on the fly. I don't know. It's, I'm no psychologist, but (laughs) I feel like that makes sense to me at least. Definitely. Yeah. Because I imagine like you were constantly moving schools, having to make new friends, um, having to learn like the new, like things to do in town for fun. So yeah, like all that constant change for sure definitely would help make someone super flexible and adaptable. So what what really stands out to you when you think about all the states that you moved around to? Were there, was there any place where you actually lived for a while or any key experiences that really stand out to you when you reflect on that? The, the first big one is when my, my 16-year-old sister, Kennedy, was born. She actually, she has special needs. She has Down syndrome. So, you know, my, we didn't have anyone with special needs in my family and just seeing the challenge that is that she's had to overcome even ever since she was just a a newborn all the way till now and how much work she has to put in for everything and how incredible of a person she is in her sense of humor. And I think having that experience growing up really changed my perspectives. Uh, I know it, it, it affected our whole family in a very positive way. It made us more open and more loving and more accepting of people. And I think that's generally more common now, but I know that that had a huge impact on me growing up and just shaping me as a, as a young man. You know, I was 11 when she was born. So as she was going through a lot, I was becoming a teenager and it's, it's always, it's had a huge impact on all of us. So that, that was a big one. And then we lived in Michigan. I think the longest I ever lived anywhere was Michigan and we lived there for four years and that's where I started high school and stuff like that. So, you know, those are pretty formative experiences. And I think that's, that's kind of the other big thing that stands out. Obviously we, we moved 
between my sophomore and junior year here to Colorado. And that's just when I really got into more like extreme sports stuff and like adrenaline junkie kind of stuff. (laughs) But I think those are probably the big three. So you mentioned your sister having Down syndrome, and it's something that I can honestly say I'm I'm not super familiar with. Although I've I've known two people to have it. One who was kind of able to function in life with a lot of assistance, and then someone who really just didn't have any mobility. Um, there weren't a ton of like neurological signals going to their brains, and they were very much just sedentary um and you know when you think about kind of just like a like a couch potato um if you will so I'm, i'm curious for you um i know that there's like a lot of misunderstanding just a lack of knowledge when it comes to down syndrome what are some of the things like thinking about your sister that maybe um she's encountered um or that you've learned that you think might be important to share with others um who may not be super familiar about with what Down syndrome is? I would say the first, the the variability. I mean, that is so not Kennedy. She's very high functioning. They're actually, um, there's a, so my family lives in Colorado as well. And they, my mom found a school that helps, it, it prepares people with special needs to get their driver's licenses. And like, she's, she's very very high functioning she's very intelligent she has the most ridiculous sense of humor and no it's ridiculous she's such she's so competitive and she's just a smack talker and it, it's hilarious like you have to she sounds you awesome have to be, you have to be around it to really appreciate it but she's such a little dork in the best way and yeah she's very high functioning like she's hopefully you're gonna gonna be able to drive at some point which is is huge even you know as a as a baby before she could talk because it, it is somewhat common for kids with down syndrome to be nonverbal. she actually learned sign language and would sign as a baby before she ever spoke it was really incredible and just i i think it's it's like any other disability i mean there's so much stuff that she does and that she's capable of and people don't realize it and i i think it's so I know she's had such a huge impact on so many people's lives because of all the stuff that she does do. And like her personality is, it's just ridiculous. She's so sweet. And I I think everybody kind of is blown away by what she has accomplished and continues to accomplish. You know, she's very active as well. She, she does a lot of stuff with um, special Olympics, basketball and swimming and track and soccer and gymnastics and, it's I it, yes it is it's its own disability but I, I think it obviously us having our own disabilities we we know that that doesn't stop there's still so so many things you can figure out how to do if you're really determined to do it and she's just like that. She sounds really incredible and wow signing as a baby that's so impressive that's so cool. It was wild, especially like looking back on it now with like in retrospect, it's kind of crazy to think about, but it was so cool. And even, you know, she started to talk, then she would talk and sign. And it was just, it was kind of like second nature for her where it's like passively as she was talking, occasionally she would throw signs in there and that lasted for years, you know, it slowly phased out, but like 
just as a force of habit, she would occasionally throw signs out while she was talking. It was so neat to watch. So Zach, you kind of hinted at this before, but I was curious to know, you know, just growing up among so many people who had been in the military, um, do you feel like your decision to go into the military was something you were in charge of, or did you kind of feel like it might've been like an arranged marriage type of thing? No, it was absolutely on me. I, I, I'm the only Marine in my family. I, I do have like a distant second cousin that was in the Marines or something like that, but everybody else was army or air force. And I wanted to be an infantryman. So, and that's what I ended up doing, but I started talking to a recruiter, a Marine Corps recruiter. I think when I was 16, I mean, I was literally too young to like even start doing any sort of like early enlistment program stuff with them. And I had known my, my whole life growing up that I wanted to be in the military, but for a long time, I thought I wanted to be a, a pilot. So we, since we lived in, in Colorado, we're, we were actually only like an hour north of the Air Force Academy. So for a while, that's what I thought I was going to want to do. And then while I was in high school, I started looking into all of that. I changed my mind and shifted focuses to wanting to become in wanting to be an infantryman and obviously outside of special forces. I mean, the Marine Corps has the, that reputation of being the, like the elite fighting force of America. So that's what I wanted to do. So you go in as a machine gunner. Firstly, what, what is that? And why did you choose that route? The platoon I was in was actually a combined anti-armor team. So it was machine gunners like myself and anti-tank missilemen. And so the machine gunners in my platoon, myself included, employed 50 cal machine guns and Mark 19s, which are fully automatic grenade launchers. And then our anti-tank missilemen had these tow missile systems and javelin missile systems. And along with a medium machine gun that shot a, a smaller caliber than what we had. But the whole idea there is... Uh, alongside suppressing for maneuvering elements and that's in an you know an offensive posture that's typically when you're suppressing for a maneuvering element but machine guns are also heavily employed in defensive postures because of their ability to to isolate and maneuvering enemies and suppress them and also eliminate them as they maneuver through obstacles and stuff that you've set up in your defense but the idea with the combined armor anti combined anti armor teams, gosh, was that you know machine guns roll up and start essentially drawing out the attention of enemy armor, and then while the enemy armor is distracted or engaging the machine guns, that the anti tank missilemen come up and execute the target with their missile systems. Um, our platoon was also used a lot for a quick reactionary or quick reaction force stuff. So it's like, and I, I'm not a combat vet. I, I deployed twice. I had no, no combat experience. They were both peacetime deployments, but those forces are typically used when uh, ground elements get in a, in a tough spot and they just need heavier, 
heavier fires to help get them out of the situation. That's kind of what those platoons are typically used for. You mentioned that you had two deployments. Where were you sent for those deployments? So the Marine Corps has, I mean, I'm not exactly sure how the Army does their deployment rotations, but in the Marine Corps, infantry units do a rotation of a unit deployment program deployment, which is basically just just for training. And obviously, if something were to happen while you're deployed, then you can you might be one of the, the first units to, to be sent somewhere. But uh, that first deployment was a UDP deployment. And I was, it was split between Okinawa, Japan and the main island of Japan. So it's two months, two months of training in the jungles in Okinawa, and then two months training in the snow on Mount Fuji on the main island of Japan. And then another two months in the jungle on like the, the second third of the deployment. So that was six months. And then the second one was a Marine Expeditionary Unit deployment. And that is more ship-based. You know, the Marine Corps is an amphibious force. So we flew to Okinawa and were based out of there. But then we were actually floating around the Pacific on like a, a essentially a battle group of a bunch of different ships with our our unit um you know all of the support units needed for an infantry unit like artillery and an air wing and the the navy guys that crew those ships and all that stuff and uh so that was seven months some of that was on ship some of it was in okinawa doing jungle training some of it was in the outback in australia doing amphibious landings and like sustained operations with the Australian Defense Force and stuff like that. It was really that they were both very different. I got to do a lot of really cool stuff. So obviously being a machine gunner is a really cool job. And I guess I did really well. So I got sent to a lot of advanced schools while I was in. So I went to I'm trying to think what like one of the courses that I went to was a called Combat Hunter and you learn how to track people, like, you know, actually like reading human tracks on the ground, track people Ooh. down and um, I was at an urban leaders course where I learned how to make breaching charges for to access in, in urban environments, different ways to get into buildings, including like they taught us how to make one of these charges. And I don't even re- I don't remember exactly what it was called, but you essentially take two IV bags of saline solution and put a bunch of debt cord in between them, which is essentially like explosive cable. And if you put it on a door for whatever reason, the way that the pressure comes out between those saline bags, like if you slap that thing on a door and blow it up, it just rips the entire door off of its hinges and like blows it into the back of a room. And just, I mean, I was like 19 learning how to do all the stuff and it was, it was wild. And before my second deployment, I got sent to a, a school to become a joint fires observer. Um, the, our unit, like the Marine Corps is, and I'm sure this is true for the Army too or any other branch, but obviously I was only in the Marines. Um, they're always testing out new technology and stuff like that. And so throughout the year, the Marine Corps always has an experimental battalion because there's something called the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab. And that battalion is basically how the Marine Corps is testing all of these new technologies and stuff and including tactics and and things like that. And so for my second deployment, we were that battalion. And so our unit was trying some new tactics and they sent a bunch of us to this course to become joint fires observers. But essentially you work 
as this is in, you know, just basically like extra tools for your, your toolbox while you're, you're doing stuff as an infantryman. But I got sent to school so that I could call in airstrikes from jets and helo gun runs and coordinate their fires with artillery and mortars. Um, and, and working in line with a, a JTAC, which is uh, basically someone who has a, uh, what is it? Joint terminal air controller, terminal attack controller. I think it's air controller. Um, and those guys are the ones who actually like you're, you're talking between you're basically like working under them as a JFO because their only job is to coordinate fires from, from aircraft. So they're the ones that actually you as a JFO, you find the target and provide all the targeting information. And like, while you're doing this, you're working with a, a map and a compass and a protractor and coordinating via radio between you, the pilots, whatever suppressive element you're using, like artillery or mortars, the JTAC and trying to coordinate fires to suppress an, an enemy position with those indirect fires, which are like the artillery and the mortars and, timing in line so that those they're suppressed as jets come in to you know drop a bomb and making sure that the jet isn't going to cross the the flight path of those indirect fire rounds and while all this is happening you know the jtac's reading stuff to you you're reading stuff back to the jtac the pilots are talking to you and when the aircraft is on its final attack heading which again is information that you've provided and your jtac wherever they're at is also working this stuff out on the map, trying to make sure that you're not going to hit a friendly element and stuff like that. And when they're on their final attack heading, you know, the pilot comes over the radio and says in, you know, Viper two, two in two zero two or whatever. And that's, and then the JTAC will give them the green light to drop the bomb. And they just tell them they're cleared hot and they'll do it. And that was probably just, you know, I do, I got kind of sweaty, like talking about it. It was just so intense and cool to be able to do that. And I, that was probably just in terms of like unique experiences that I had, I would say that was probably the top. So Zach, you actually marry your high school sweetheart and, um, you know, after high school, you're deployed. Um, I, I know there's like kind of like a really, there's a big journey here for you. I'm curious to know kind of early on, um, you know, I give military spouses so much kudos because I can't even imagine like how hard it is for both of you, you know, to be separated, to have that constant fear of, you know, is something going to happen? to me or to my spouse. Um, but I'm curious to know, like, how did you two navigate that early on when you first joined and got deployed? Um, obviously in the long run, not very successfully because we're divorced now, but, (laughs) um, (laughs) so when I, when I first went into the Marines, we actually weren't together. So I had dated her. Like, I, I don't know if you Remember, but I, I said I moved high schools between sophomore and junior year. Mm-hmm. So I had, I knew her from my first high school. And when I moved to Colorado, at some point we ended up breaking up. And then while I was in the Marines before, like, before my first deployment, while I was doing the workup for that deployment, we ended up 
getting back together. And so we were dating while I was on my first deployment. She was still living back in Michigan at that point. So she was with her family and had had support during that deployment. And, you know, it's, it's tough while you're gone a lot and you don't get to talk a whole lot, but you figure it out and kind of cherish the time that you do get together when you get back. And during my workout for my second deployment, she moved out to California with me. That's where I was stationed was on Camp Pendleton in Southern California. And uh, we got an apartment and moved in together and kind of were giving it a shot, seeing how, how all that goes. And that was our, you know, I had lived in the barracks while I was in the Marines, but it's totally, that was my first time having a, an actual place with somebody. And so uh, that, that went really well. And so I ended up proposing to her and we got married before my second deployment. And for that deployment, it was actually, she had, wanted to to move back home to have the support and this was you know something that i now looking back i obviously i realized it was a mistake on my end uh, you know i moved a lot growing up and, and she didn't and i i thought she'd be okay in california and i didn't want us to lose our apartment and stuff like that so she stayed in california and didn't uh, our, our communication wasn't great um obviously i didn't realize that then looking back now years removed from from the situation and a little more mature than I was when I was what at that time I was 20. Yeah. Our communication was lacking. And so ultimately like that ended up paying a price while I was on my second appointment. She was having an affair with a guy that she worked with. And I actually found out while I was deployed from his wife. So, and for whatever reason that that deployment was really rough in turn, like, it's it's not uncommon for people's spouses to cheat on them while they're deployed, but in our unit, it was it was way worse than our first deployment. I think we were gone so much, even for that workup, and then because we were on ship for so much of that deployment, we really it was a lot less contact than we had on that first deployment. But um, so I ended up finding out on the tail end of that deployment after. We were back in Okinawa, um, you know, doing some different iterations of jungle training, and I was actually waiting for a surgery. So I wasn't going to the field and stuff with everybody else. But I woke up one morning. So like when once we're back in Okinawa, we're in normal barracks when we're not in the field and in the jungle. So have Wi-Fi. And I had a Facebook message request from someone that I didn't recognize. And I read it. And she had screenshots of some of the messages that were going back and forth between her husband and my wife. And that's how I found out. <laughs> so that was, it, it turns out, I think, you know, she made it less than six months into our marriage before she was having an affair, but of it, it's just, you know, it's part of that life that happens. And it turned out that I ended up being one of those people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that sounds pretty traumatic, like really hard to, to come back from a deployment with that type of news. What do you remember like your headspace being your initial reaction? Yeah. So I, I mean, I remember that morning. I, I literally, I woke up because I, if I remember there was like a, it was either like somewhere like 13 or 17 hour difference between California and Okinawa. Um, so I woke up one morning with that message request and I like, I like was just shocked and my roommate, I was like, was waking up too because, you know, we have to get up for PT in the morning. 
which is, you know, where we go on runs or whatever, whatever the thing is for the day. Um, and I was like, dude, Allie's cheating on me. And he's like, what? And I was like, Allie's cheating on me. And like, just, I was reading the message and just kind of in shock. Um, that gut dropping feeling where it's kind of like, Oh shit. You know, like just, it just gut dropping. And I didn't really know what to do. Obviously. So we went down to, to go to PT and I told my, my section leader what was going on in my platoon sergeant, my platoon commander. And like, all right, well we got PT to do. We'll do it when we get back. Uh, so we did whatever we did and then I went through the, the course of trying to address all of that, um, which was a fucking mess. So, um, obviously I was gone, um, trying to handle all of that stuff and it was, it was a mess trying to figure that out with her. Again, I was waiting for a surgery, that I couldn't get over there. So I was waiting to be sent back to the States anyways. And I think we only had like a month and a half left, I think in the deployment. So I'm, you know, I'm distraught and like trying to get my, my unit like, Hey, I need this surgery and I'm waiting for it anyways. Can you just send me back so I can address these issues with, with my marriage right now? Like everything's kind of falling apart and I'm just sitting here and uh, they didn't. But you know, when I fast forward, um, after we got back, I did, we tried to make it work. And I, I think I got back in like November of 2017, tried to make it work. And it just, you know, I, the, the trust wasn't there. So it, it ended up not working. And in, I think, February-ish of 2018, so a couple months later, um, I finally called it quits. And just moved back into the barracks. She moved back to Michigan. And then I ended up having my surgery and had, you know, like a week or 10 days off or something like that afterwards. Um, and we were still talking at that point. And I was like, you know, why don't you fly back out here and we'll try and work this out a little bit more while I've, I've got this time. Um, all the other guys on my platoon were gone. They were in the field and I literally, I was just recovering from surgery. So she flew out and we were, you know, still just kind of in the, the throes of it all. And I ended up a couple days into it. I just, I was like, Hey, I can't, I can't do this. And I bought another plane ticket, dropped her off at the airport. And that was really like the last time I, I talked to her. And that was, like I said, February, March of 2018 and then later that month um in, in march of 2018 is when i was in my motorcycle accident so actually i rode motocross and i was out at a racetrack that i would ride at and i don't remember what happened like i literally i have zero memory i remember picking my dirt bike up off the ground and being out of it but like i don't remember what happened before or after it was really muddy that day and the only thing I can think of, so like the, the upper, if you like the upper, like left quarter of my helmet was what was all jacked. So it was like, I, I guess I, I think I came down on the back end of the jump because that's, that's where my bike was, was on the backside of a jump. And I think maybe I hit the mud and the bike just came out from underneath me. And then I, you know, face planted into the, <laughs> the mud or something. I don't know. Um, 
but and everything from here is just piecing together what what i've been told so i wasn't out there with anyone that i knew it was just a big racetrack and you you pay to go ride and there's a ton of people out there but my parents told me that i called them and again i'm i'm in california at this point i'm and they they live here in colorado so somehow i got back to my truck and got my phone and called my parents and was like hey i think i have a concussion and they're like where are you and i was like i don't know now that I had a racetrack somewhere, uh, I went to ride my dirt bike and I crashed. And again, I've ha- had other concussions from sports growing up. So I, I know what that feels like, but I've never had one like that where I don't remember. Um, but I guess I called them and I was like, yeah, I, I told them that stuff. And they were like, okay, hang out. We're going to try and figure out where you're at. Um, just give us a few minutes. And I guess right after they hung up, I called them again and basically said all the same stuff. I was like, hey, I was in a motorcycle accident. And I think I have a concussion. And then that's kind of when they realized something was wrong. So somehow they got in contact with the paramedic at the racetrack. He came over and sat with me until my friends came and got me from base. And then they, they took me to the hospital. And obviously I had a brain injury from that. That's intense, Zach. Um, it's, I can't even imagine dealing with finding out that your spouse is cheating on you, trying to work it out, realizing that this is kind of like a field effort and then getting into this terrible motorcycle accident and getting a TBI. I, I like, what, what was that like for you? What did that do to your mental? Like I imagine it had to impact your mental health going through all of that within such a short span. Yeah. I mean, I was in mentally, I was in a terrible place before the mm-hmm. motorcycle accident. Um, that's not a fun spot to be in. And, you know, that was like my, my first love. Um, and that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's all, that's a lot to deal with regardless of the circumstances. Um, I just, I, I obviously I was not in a good place. Um, I was trying to stay busy with things. You know, I was, I was, I've always been big into working out. So I was working out a lot. And then like on the weekends I would go ride my motorcycle and I was just trying to keep myself busy and distracted. Something that's also big in the infantry community is like, shut the fuck up, suck it up, and let's not talk about it and let's drink instead. And so that's kind of when all of that started and got out of hand was after my motorcycle accident. The depression just got really, really bad. It it went from just not <laughs> being in a, from being in a really bad place to just struggling. I, I was having issues sleeping. I couldn't fall asleep. I couldn't stay asleep. So I was, you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and then be up all night. And I was thinking about stuff with, with Allie, um, you know, still so fresh, like trying to figure out process everything. And, you know, am I making the right decision now? And, you know, what's life looking like moving forward and all that stuff. And was just really struggling. Uh, that carried on. I mean, through the time that I got out. So this, this is all March of 2018. And I got out of the Marines. Like my four-year enlistment was up in August of 2018. So I was honorably discharged. I came back to Colorado, started going to school for nursing. I wanted to be an ER nurse. And I after I got my CNA certification, which is a certified nurse's assistant, I was working in a cardiac stroke unit. Uh, at a hospital here in Colorado and going to college and I was getting straight A's and doing well at work, but I was 
also drinking just about every night and my depression was just getting worse and worse and I wasn't sleeping very well. Same sleeping issues. Um, again, was very impulsive after that motorcycle accident that, you know, that still kind of continues to this day. I don't know like what got knocked loose, but that's something that I I'm conscious of and kind of have to always be conscious of and work to not really, you know, to, to, put extra thought into analyzing things before I make decisions. So I, I get out in August of 2018. I'm, I'm doing well and all of that stuff, but still trying to make myself just keep myself distracted. And so still working out a lot, which is, you know, that's just something that I'll always do. I enjoy that. And that does a lot for me, but in terms of hobby, like trying to go snowboarding and ride my, my dirt bike and stuff like that. And, mountain biking and downhill mountain biking you know i would drive all the way up to the mountains on my day off which you know would be like a two-hour drive to get up to a ski resort get there and just be like so apathetic and not want to be there and then i would just drive home like i just i was having an issue making myself do stuff it was the same way with my dirt bike and it it's such there's so much that goes into trying to get all of your gear ready to go to a racetrack and get all your stuff geared up and you pay to get into the racetrack and there were multiple times where i loaded all my gear up went to the racetrack paid to get into the racetrack and then never unpacked all my my gear got all my gear on and actually rode i just left and, or you know went and rode a lap or two and then was like screw this i don't want to be here and just went home Again, was still showing up uh, for school and work and doing well in both of those things. And, uh, but I was just struggling and it was just, it wasn't getting any better. And in March of 2019, March 31st, um, actually, I, that's when I shot myself in the head. Hi there. This concludes part one. Be sure to tune into part two next week to catch the second half of this incredible conversation. Not Your Average Goat is produced and edited by yours truly, with music by Sergey Quadrado and Anton Blazov. All content is copyrighted and should not be recreated, reproduced, or reused without explicit consent. Please visit notyouraveragegoat.org forward slash contact for questions.